Open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 15. Our reading this morning will be the first 13 verses. Exodus 15 captures for us the response of Moses and the Israelites after they were delivered out of Egypt and after they walked on dry dry land through the Red Sea and the Egyptians were consumed by that water. Exodus 15 beginning in verse 1. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea. And his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrew your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil, my desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. Amen. O Lord, your life, your sacrifice demands our very life. As slaves of Christ, our Master, our Redeemer, our Savior, our Lord and our God, we praise you and we thank you for the redeeming love that we just sang from our hearts. The price that was paid on our behalf, we thank you. And may you now, Lord, prepare our hearts as we continue in the worship service this morning by way of the exalted word, the teaching of scripture. May our minds and hearts be prepared to receive what you would have. May you anoint me by your spirit's power to declare the truth that is before us this morning for your glory first and foremost in the edification of your people and the hope that we have in eternity future. The ultimate eternal exodus of your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please have a seat. Good morning. If you're visiting with us here this morning, we especially want to welcome you. Delighted that you could be with us. Before we begin, you can open your Bibles to Revelation 15. I have an announcement that three weeks from today, which would be August 10th, we we will transition into our uh, one service format meaning that we will have Sunday school for all ages beginning, it's either going to be three or four years of age, and we'll let you know in the coming weeks, uh, up through adult from 9 to 9.45, 
And then from 9.45 to 10 a.m., there'll be that transition time from classroom to a bathroom break into service. This is so our entire church can worship together, which means you'll have to, some people are going to have to sit in the front row, of all things, <laughs> and um, squeeze in together. And for those of you who have young families that you're training to teach, or t- teaching and training to sit through service, and perhaps they're not ready yet, we have the fellowship hall where there's a screen in there now, and uh, the service will be fed into the screen, and you'll be able to sit in there. We'll have chairs set up just as we have in here, okay? We'll give you more details in the next couple weeks. Three weeks from today, April 10th, okay? Very good. Are you excited about that? Some are, some aren't? All right. Revelation chapter 15. This now is the word of God which reads, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing. Seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be the sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you. For your righteous acts have been revealed." After this, I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was open. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure, bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. I pray that the Lord will impress upon all our hearts this morning the glorious truth revealed for all who are in Christ this morning. Revelation chapter 15, beloved, provides for us an intensified and magnified replay of the great exodus of the Old Testament, where we see the ultimate deliverance of God's people along with the final destruction of God's enemies. Now, there's no doubt that the single most important redemptive event in the Old Testament is the Exodus. In the closing chapters of Genesis, we meet Joseph, a shepherd boy. A shepherd boy who was sold off by his jealous and envious brothers to a group of slave traders sending him off into Egypt. 
And you know the story. He faced many trials. He faced many troubles. But eventually, by the providential grace of God, he was enabled to interpret dreams. Pharaoh was troubled. He had a dream for which Joseph interpreted that there would be seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. So he was able to prepare for that famine. Therefore, Pharaoh elevated young Joseph to the place of a prince. And eventually, he would send for his family, or God would providentially send them there, to where 70 of his family members would make up what would be known the Hebrew people. And over many years, they would multiply in number. Joseph would die, Jacob, the family, would die, but the Hebrew people would multiply so greatly that a new pharaoh, when he was office, in office, became paranoid that these Hebrew people one day would uprise against us and overtake us. So he sends out a decree that every son born of the Hebrew people shall be put to death leading to the first organized slaughter of babies. One baby was enabled by the grace and the providence of God to escape. He was placed in a small little ark, pushed out into the reeds, the water, where he was heard crying by none other than Pharaoh's daughter. The scripture says that Pharaoh's daughter had compassion on the baby. And she would take that baby and adopt that baby and erase that baby in Pharaoh's palace, and the name of that baby was Moses. Moses would grow up in the palace, and not forgetting his true identity, was out one day and witnessed an Egyptian guard beating his fellow Hebrew people. The scripture says he looked this way, he looked that way, then he killed the Egyptian, he buried the Egyptian in the sand, thinking no one bore witness of that act until the next day when it was revealed that someone did see. Pharaoh found out. Pharaoh wanted to kill him. So this 40-year-old Moses flees to Midian and the man who began as a prince ends his life as a shepherd. In contrast to Joseph who began his life as a shepherd and ended up as a prince. At 40 Years of age, he's in Midian. After 40 years of herding sheep, he's called by God through the burning bush. He says, I commission you to lead my people out of bondage. Who shall I say sent me? I am that I am. That, of course, would lead to the great exodus of God's people along with the destruction of God's enemies. So that then is the single most important redemptive event in the Old Testament. 1,450 years later, seven churches of Asia Minor would receive a letter known as the Revelation of Jesus Christ. And they would have been immediately mindful of the Exodus language being conveyed right here in Revelation 
chapter 15. A people under heavy persecution, a people dying for their faith in Jesus Christ, understanding here by the grace of God and the illumination of the scriptures, the very lengths by which God will go in order to secure a relationship with his people, deliver those people, and destroy their enemies. This vision is a deliverance of eternal significance. Now, the promise of the Exodus was God's pledge to enter into a covenant relationship with his people. God said to the Hebrew people, I will be your God and you shall be my people. That promise began the night before their departure from Egypt. They were instructed, gird up the loins, gird up your loins, pull up your skirts, tie them off, put away unleavened bread because you will be called out swiftly. But before you do, I want you to take a lamb and I want you to kill that lamb. He said this, Moses called the elders, Exodus 12, of Israel and he said to them, go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the doors of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you dead. See, the blood assured them that judgment will pass. The blood assured them that deliverance is certain, all because of this relationship. Almighty God and his people. Now, Revelation provides for us the basis for that relationship. And that is the sacrifice of the Lamb of God. This exodus foreshadows that which Christ would come and do, providing us an exodus, providing us a deliverance that is of eternal significance. And we also will be revealed for us is the consummation of that sacrifice. And that's the scene of chapter 15. Believers, you want to place yourself in verses 2 through 4. Because this is where you will stand. So we're going to see the ultimate fulfillment of this covenantal relationship in context to the ancient promise of deliverance provided for us in the Old Testament through the Exodus. What John sees here is the fulfillment of the ultimate and final Exodus. Are you with me? Now, what I want you to see this morning, beloved, is this, that throughout all of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, we see one Savior, one gospel, one people of God, and one celebration gospel song. That's it. One way to be saved from Genesis to Revelation. God has a one people of God providing one gospel, one way of escape. It's Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, in addition to that, John, like the exodus of the past, is provided a vision of a deliverance of a people. But in addition to the deliverance of the people is the destruction of God's enemies. We can't leave that out. 
Because some of us have a hard time stomaching the fact that not only will God destroy his enemies, but we're going to be in heaven rejoicing over the fact that he destroys his enemies. Okay, now hold on to your hats for now, okay? And we'll unfold that by way of the scripture this morning. Now, we see judgment unfolding. And the means of this final and ultimate judgment of the exodus, the ultimate exodus, comes by way of seven plagues, seven bowls of judgment, the cause of which is none other than God himself. Notice in verse 1, seven plagues which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is what? finished. Now, we don't want to think that these are last as in sequential order. Uh, We know by now that the book of Revelation, these visions are not chronological. This is apocalyptic literature, so it's numerous visions provided for us. So when the writer says that these are last, it's last in the sense of order in which John receives them. We've already seen a vision of final judgment. But here now is another perspective of that final judgment. This then is the last vision that John receives regarding final judgment. So we see the introduction of these seven plagues in verse 1. And then in verses 5 through 8, we see the seven angels who come out of the sanctuary of God. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Now, sandwiched between verse 1... And verse 5 is another vision of an altogether different scenario. This is a literary technique that begins with a general announcement. Verse 1 is the general announcement of this final judgment of God. A vision of God's judgment upon his enemies that's interrupted by another vision of God's redeemed people who are in heaven worshiping him. After which the vision of judgment picks back up again in verse 5, which develops for us in more detail the consequences of that judgment. Now, this has occurred before in Revelation. If you've been with us, back in chapter 6, we saw Jesus opening the seven seals of judgment. And then there was an interruption between seal number 6 and seal number 7. We're in the midst of those earthly temporal judgments being poured out by God himself. John has provided another vision. It's a picture of Christians being sealed on their foreheads. Now, we would have to put ourselves in their place. Here's a church under heavy persecution. Here's a church that is suffering the consequences of identifying with the Lord Jesus Christ. And as they're reading about all these these uh, consequences of judgment coming out upon an unbelieving world, wars, rumors of wars, pestilence, famine, and so on, they would ask the question, what will keep us from being swept up in these same judgments? So there's interruption. It's an attention grabber. It's to keep God's people focused So chapter 7 is an interruption that depicts God's people being sealed with eternal perfection, eternally secured. So however you die as a believer, all it means is that you leave this place and you enter into the presence of the Almighty. 
Whether you die by way of persecution, you die by way of sword, you die by way of cancer, however, you are sealed, therefore you enter into his presence. And then that vision goes on to actually show, in addition to being sealed, a group of God's people standing in the presence of God, receiving their eternal reward. So this is an encouragement to God's people. Remember, Revelation is a literal letter written to a literal people who are suffering for the namesake of Jesus Christ. John does the same thing here in chapter 15 that he does back in chapter 6. He begins here to express the final and ultimate judgment of God upon his enemies, and then he provides this interruption that envisions God's people secured in eternity future. He does this for two reasons. Number one, to assure God's redeemed people that they are exempt from the final, ultimate wrath of God. All right? And secondly, to reveal that we, just like ancient Israel, will praise him for the very acts of his judgment upon an unbelieving world. That thing that's hard to stomach. It won't be by the end of the day, this morning. Now, what we're going to do this morning is I'm going to save the heavenly scene of you, along with every other saved Christian throughout time, singing this glorious song in verses 2 through 4. We're going to save that for last. And what we want to unfold first is the judgment being depicted here in verse 1 and in verses 5 through 6. We've already seen the introduction of that judgment in verse 1, so let's jump down to verse 5. It says, After this, I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. Now note what their clothing is like. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 13, this is how Jesus appears in this vision. A golden sash around his chest. This reveals for us, beloved, the rank of these angels, the magnificence of these angels, the power of these angels, along with their close association to the Lord Jesus Christ. Not all uh, angels in heaven have the same amount of power. They have specific roles, just like we do. In verse 7, One of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. Now, you remember the four living creatures, beloved? They are those who stand nearest to the throne of God. We see that back in chapter 4, verse 6. They have two primary responsibilities. Number one is that they lead worship in heaven. And secondly, they administer the judgment of God. If you notice in uh, chapter 4, beginning in verse 9... We read, and whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who's seated on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before him. When we get to chapter six, we see that they administer judgment. Now I watched when the lamb opened one of the seven seals and I heard one of the four living creatures with a voice like thunder say, come. And that's when they called out the four horsemen, the one that represents war, the one that represents pestilence, the one that represents famine, and the one that represents death. 
temporal judgments of God upon an unbelieving world, always with the hope that what? That they'll repent and that they'll believe. Tsunamis, earthquakes, famine, events like 9-11. Churches were filled after 9-11. People dwindled away. Here in chapter 15, verse 7, these four living creatures hand out bowls. These bowls, this type of bowl is a wide bowl. It's very shallow. Here it is filled up with the, with the wrath of God. That's the vision. And, and it's to show us that it's going to be poured out quickly and it can be poured out easily. When this judgment comes, filled to the rim, it's over. It's devastating. And this image comes partly from the Old Testament where bulls were used in conjunction to priestly service inside the temple, inside the tabernacle, the tent of witness. So these bulls express the complete and final wrath of God. That's the picture we want to have in our mind. But take note of exactly what John sees in this ultimate Exodus vision. He sees, notice, the sanctuary of the tent of witness. You know what that was? You know what was kept in the sanctuary of the tent of witness? The Ten Commandments. The law. The perfect holy law of God. The law of the Lord is, beloved, his testimony. And it's revealed here not as mercy, but as divine judgment. Now, this is to contrast for us chapter 11, verse 19. Remember, John is given another vision of the temple of heaven. And what does he see there? The Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant held the tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments. The Ark of the Covenant held the law. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant was a seat known as the mercy seat. And that's where the blood of atonement would be sprinkled. The Ark's not here. Mercy's not here. Mercy was for the believers. Judgment is for the unbelievers. So he doesn't see the ark with the mercy seat, but only the law. The testimony of Almighty God. No mercy seat, there's no mercy seat, there's no blood atonement. Where there's no blood atonement, there's ultimate and final judgment. No opportunity for repentance. That's why preachers say this, friends. Today is the day of salvation. Repent and come to Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ by faith alone. Trust in him alone and you will be saved and delivered from such judgment. So John sees here no place of escape for unrepentant sinners. There's no mercy. And notice here, it's out of the sanctuary come these seven angels with the seven plagues, verse 6. That's judgment. So what this shows for us is they're coming out of the very abode of God. They're ordered out from the very presence of God. They're doing God's bidding here. They're doing God's work. They're pouring out his final wrath. Verse 8, notice, And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. No one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels was what? Finished. You have a tabernacle. You have testimony, you have smoke, you have glory, you have power. All of this, beloved, points us back to the first exodus. 
Back to the Old Testament. After Israel crossed the Red Sea, what was their destination? Mount Sinai. What did God provide them at Mount Sinai? The law. He covered that mountain with smoke. He covered that mountain with his glory, the glory of his presence. And in Exodus 40, verse 34, which reads, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the the tabernacle, and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. We see this again in 1 Kings chapter 8. And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister. Why? Because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Do we, what do we know about the whole radiant holiness of God? The purity of Almighty God. That this smoke from his glory represents his immediate presence, which is unapproachable, friends. He's holy, holy, holy. Isaiah Psalm, smoke filled the temple. The foundations of the temple were shaken by the glory of the Lord. For he is, verse 7, the God who lives forever and ever. I am that I am. Now, if you're not a Christian here this morning, friends, this description should frighten you. As we present this truth to our unbelieving friends, this should frighten them, but fright and and being scared in and of itself isn't going to save anyone. It's going to take the Holy Spirit of God to bring someone to the place of repenting and believing. We've all sat through weddings and heard the gospel. What did we do? We rejected it. We've all been to funerals. We've heard the gospel. What did we do? We rejected it. We've all sat under sound preaching at one time or another. What did we do? We reject it. We get sick. We cry out, God, help me but we reject his gospel. In the midst of temporal and limited judgments, as I said, 9-11, tsunamis, earthquakes, we cry out to God, but we reject the gospel unless the Holy Spirit is there to transform the heart and by his abundant, abounding grace, take a sinner who's lost and transform him into a believer. So there will come a day when all will stand before this God who lives forever and ever. Since there's no escaping the one who lives forever and ever, there is likewise no escape from his judgment. The only escape is Christ. He is the mercy seat. He is the exodus. But it has to be here and now that one surrenders, not then and there, because then and there, as we see, is too late. So as you can see, the revelation doesn't provide us with anything new or unique, does it, if you've been with us since June, right? Because it simply is repeating in apocalyptic format something very old, the law of God, the redemptive witness of truth, the Lord Jesus Christ. He alone is the exodus. He is the one who delivers us from sin. So we see this pattern in Revelation, do we not? God's preservation of his people, persecution, deliverance, judgment, Deliverance, judgment, persecution. Persecution, judgment, deliverance. That's what we see in a recapitulated format over and over again. Same truth, different visions of that truth. 
So if you're tired, beloved, of reading and studying about judgment and deliverance over and over again, let me remind you what we have seen thus far. We have witnessed seven seals of judgment, seven trumpets of judgment, seven bowls of judgment, four horses of judgment, earthquakes, thunders, flashes, and lightnings, and rumblings, and three rows, woes, and many plagues. That's the theme of the entire book of Revelation. And if we lived under heavy-handed persecution, we would be rejoicing, saying, give me more, give me more. I want to be reassured of my deliverance. I want to be reminded that under this persecution, where I'm going. I just lost everything in a tsunami. I just died. My friend just died for the faith. This is the only book with a promise attached to it for those who read and hear it. Blessed are those who read aloud the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear and who keep what? Who keep the recapitulated format of that which is written in it because the time is near. Earthquakes, wars, rumors of wars, Jesus said, are only the beginning of birth pains. Watch the news. The time is near. In other words, beloved, if we don't understand the horror of the exodus, we'll never understand the joy of the exodus. Because salvation means nothing if we don't know what we're saved from. If we don't biblically understand sin and judgment and wrath, you'll never understand pardon, mercy, and deliverance. (laughs) It's not possible. Notice what happened in Exodus 14 as these people were standing in fear. They're chased out, they're led out, they're led and chased. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared and the Egyptians fled and fled it, fled into it rather, and the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained, and as you read on, they washed up in shore, and in response, they praise God. This is, a, this is the closure of terror for Israel. While they were standing and waiting and were trapped, they were facing the Red Sea in front of them. On their right hand and on their left were mountainous ranges they could not pass. Behind them was Pharaoh and his minions coming up behind him. They're in a box, closed in, north, south, east, and west. And who put him in the box? God put him in the box. God put him in the trap. And in his providential leading, trapping them from every side, why does he do this, beloved? for one reason, one sole purpose, nothing less than an opportunity for his majesty and glory to be put on display. Is that how we read the Bible? Is that our desire, to see his majesty and glory put on display? The great deliverer. God oftentimes puts us in a box, does he not? He traps us from all sides and reveals for us, humanly speaking, that there is no way out for you. And oftentimes we live as though that we, we can provide a pragmatic solution to our problems. Amen? This I do. This I'm sure you do. Then he tests us. Then he tries us. He boxes us in. He simply shuts all the doors 
where there is no human option. There is no human possibility. And finally, we look to him, and he provides the solution. He unfolds the solution. This is a people who've been in bondage for 400 years. They're provided God's solution. With a blast of his nostrils, he opens up the sea, and they pass through. Delivering his people, destroying his enemies. They go hand in hand. There's no deliverance without destruction. There's no destruction without deliverance. So this is supernatural deliverance, is it not? Think about this. They, they, they experience supernatural deliverance. They experience the plagues of God coming from heaven upon Egypt. They experience this deliverance towards the Red Sea, the opening of the Red Sea, the crossing of the Red Sea, all this supernatural uh, delivering power of God only to look at things naturally again and complain and murmur and rise up against their leadership, cursing, fearing. We think about our own supernatural deliverance. If you're a Christian, you know you've been supernaturally delivered. You know you had nothing to do with it. It was supernatural work of God. Amen? And amen. And I, not unlike these people, begin to look at things naturally, complain, and murmur just like them. We forget Christ. Think about Christ in light of the Exodus. We see Christ in the Exodus. Israel was redeemed from the bondage of Egypt by the blood of a Passover lamb. We are redeemed from the bondage of sin by the blood of the spotless lamb. God said to Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son. Concerning Jesus, he says, this is my one and only begotten son. Israel, God's firstborn son, was led down into Egypt by the providence of God. Though it was by the evil hands of the brothers of Joseph, it was for God's greater purposes. Led down there, and the Hebrew people would multiply, and then they would be called out of Egypt. So too, Jesus went down into Egypt when Herod was seeking to destroy all the children two years old and under in Bethlehem. God sends an angel to Joseph, and he says, rise up, take the child to Egypt. Hosea prophesies that out of Egypt I called my Son, we see it fulfilled in Matthew's account. Israel's 40 years of wandering prefigures Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness being tempted. This is Christ. So if we're going to interpret the Bible correctly, beloved, we will see the continuity that exists between the Old and New Testaments. All men and all men. There's one God presented in the Bible, one gospel presented in the Bible, one God who's over all, one gospel presented to all. There's also inherently one gospel song to be sung by the one true people of God throughout redemptive history. That's what we see before us. It is a song that presents at its roots the reign and the righteousness of God. This, Revelation 15, verses 2 and so on and through is a replay of the Exodus. Now seen from the perspective of God's people singing praise to their deliverer. Verse 2. 
And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. Here now we see the second thing John sees in this vision, sandwiched as it is between the seven angels and the seven last plagues. This vision receives the place of prominence. Now, we've seen the sea of glass before, oh man? Remember back in chapter 4? Before and around the throne is a sea of glass. Revelation chapter 4, verse 6. It speaks of God's transcendence. He is separate and altogether different from his creation, beloved. So here now, in yet another vision, notice, I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. Now, even our children know that you cannot mix water and fire together, amen? But with apocalyptic literature, you can do anything you want. You can mix fire and you can mix water because these are visions to show us something mighty, to show us something great. In Revelation, fire is used over 20 plus times as a metaphor for divine judgment. Water is clear, fire is red, so what do we have when we mix the two together? We have a red sea. And by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John skillfully ties all this together as red sea imagery taken from the first exodus. And what or who does he see at the red sea? Those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and over the number of his name standing by this sea are true believers. Redeemed. Granted access to the presence of this holy, righteous, mighty God through the atoning work of Jesus Christ at the mercy seat. Those who are conquerors, defined for us to the seven churches, In those seven letters, to every church, he says, those who conquer to the end will receive this, will receive this, eternal life, robes of righteousness. They will become pillars in the temple of my God. They're preserved in the end because they've persevered to the end, and they persevere to the end because God preserves them to the end. They stand on the side of deliverance just like the Israels stood on the side of deliverance of the Red Sea. Standing beside the sea of glass, notice, with harps of God in their hands. Now, we heard this back in chapter 14. 144,000 with the voice like a sound of harpists playing on their harps. Notice verse 3. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your what? Deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your what? Ways, O King of the nations, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. This scene, as I said, includes you. If you're in Christ, you're standing here beside this sea, led out and delivered by God through Jesus Christ. All of our enemies, which are God's enemies, are drowned in ultimate and final judgment, which is the lake of fire. They're underneath, just like the Egyptians were drowned. And we're singing, notice, the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Not to be thought of as two individual songs. 
one song. The word and here is an explanatory conjunction. So when we read this, we would read it as follows. They were singing the song of Moses, the servant of God, that is the song of the Lamb. The song of Moses is the song of the Lamb. One redemption song, one glorious Savior, one glorified people of God, all whom have been delivered by the hand of God through this final and ultimate exodus. This is heaven. We stand together with those true sons of God, all those who were truly saved. We know that not all Israel is Israel. We know that not all those that pass through the Red Sea are going to be in heaven, but those that are going to be in heaven, we're going to be standing there with them. The ones who pass through the literal Red Sea will be standing with them, having all together, by the grace of God, passed through God's sea of judgment. The great exodus. So 3,500 years ago, the exodus, which was ordained to prefigure this ultimate exodus, both involved the same elements of deliverance. One is blood, and two is omnipotence which means the all-powerfulness of God. We're delivered by blood and the power of the Holy Spirit to take a wicked heart like this and transform it into a child of God. If you don't think that you're wicked in and of yourself, you can't understand the gospel. You can't understand salvation. You can't understand the table of the Lord. One song declares the liberating power of the one true God for his one true people. Notice, great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. We are singing here of his power, his rule, his sovereign reign, which is absolute, indisputable, irrefutable, and unchangeable. That's what we're singing about. Recognizing and responding to his unmatched eternal power, his royalty, his sovereignty, his judgment. Amazing are your deeds. Just and true, he says, are your ways. Referring to God's just deeds here is referring to him judging his enemies. He's just. Listen to Exodus 15.1. I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The house and his rider has been thrown into the sea. They go on to sing and praise God. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. We get to Revelation chapter 16. We read in verse 5. And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. Verse 7, I heard the altar saying, yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. This is what they're singing. Now, very important that we know this. Every song in the book of Revelation is characterized by three themes. Number one, the creative power of God. Number two, the salvation of God. And number three, the judgment of God. The creative power of God, the salvific work of God, and the judgment of Almighty God, that is what you and I will be singing about in heaven. 
Now, we might sit here today in our finite human bodies and say, there's no way I'll be singing about God's destruction of unbelievers, right? Deep down in our hearts, this is what we feel like oftentimes. Because we wonder, how could he possibly send, I know this person who's decent, how can God send anyone to hell like this? We don't see from God's perspective. We can't, not in these bodies. Here, beloved, there's no fallen nature to contend with in heaven, so there'll be no distorted view of God's justice. No one will be saying, how could he? Amen? Think about it from this point of view. First, let me ask a question. How how does the judgment and wrath of God make you feel? Don't answer the question, just think about it. How does it make you feel when you read about God being a man of war? How does it make you feel when you sing Amazing Grace? Do we honestly, beloved, think that grace is really amazing? When we look at grace, do we say, man, this grace is amazing that has saved me? Are we shocked by his grace as much as we're amazed and shocked by his justice? We seem to be very shocked and amazed by his justice, but not as shocked and amazed by his grace that saves us from his justice. And you know why I believe that we're not shocked by his grace and amazed by his grace as much as we are his justice? I think we presume upon his mercy. This is what we deserve. We've been delivered from this judgment because Christ took the judgment. Therefore, we will sing and see as he sees. Worshiping with true, pure, undeviled hearts before our sovereign king in response to his justice just as much as in response to his amazing grace. Who will not fear O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Fear here has to do with those who properly revere and confess, revere and confess the name of the Almighty. So the implied answer here to the rhetorical question, who will not fear, is that all will recognize him as true deity, because all who are here recognized him as true deity while they were down here. By grace. witnessing these great and mighty acts. All nations will come and worship you. This is not all without exception. This is all without distinction. For God will save a people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation and every people. And they will be standing there glorifying God. Just as there'll be a final judgment of people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every people. So what do we see that's amazing in this song? as we analyze it. Well, first, notice, it praises God's great and amazing deeds which are just and true. This is always the way of biblical worship, right here. It begins with God and it ends with God. You know, worship, beloved, is bankrupt and becomes idolatrous when God is not the center. When we're the center, it becomes idolatrous. Here we see it begins with God and ends with God. Great and amazing are your deeds. You are just and true. Secondly, 
It praises God's character. And notice the aspects of his character which are pointed out here. Number one is his sovereignty. His sovereignty. The Lord God, what? Almighty. King of the nations, or you can say king of the ages. This is what you'll be singing. All will recognize the sovereignty of God and bow in corresponding fear. Beloved, will be on our faces because of his graces, overwhelmed by his mercy and his radiant holy power. This is you. Secondly, you'll be singing about his holiness. You alone are holy. This is the attribute of God that sets him apart from all of his creation. He's completely set apart, but that's why salvation is so great. He's brought us near through his son to enter into the courts of praise. We can boldly enter into the throne of grace because of our mediator, Jesus Christ. There's no other way to get to him. He's holy. No one like you, almighty God. So what does John see as he looks at this vision? Number one, he sees seven angels with seven plagues. Seven represents the number of fullness or completeness. The Israelites, they witnessed the plagues of God fall upon Egypt. He sees a sea of glass mixed with fire. As the Israelites fled from Egypt, they went through the Red Sea. And at the other side, they worshipped. He also sees the tabernacle of testimony, God's law. And at Mount Sinai, that's what the Israelites experienced, the holy smoke of God. That's where holy smoke comes from. Holy smoke, that's holy smoke, which will frighten you to death. John sees the final and ultimate exodus of all God's redeemed people. That's what's in view. Notice here there is no fear, there is no anxiety, there is no tears, there is no complaining, there is no weeping, there is no sorrow, there is no bitterness, there is no loss. All there is is singing and praising and rejoicing and the playing of musical instruments. God is being praised. The Lamb of God is being adored. They're all singing the same song. Adam will be singing the same song, the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Notice here as God is being praised, not one word of the song is focused on you or me or I or we. No, we're in him. He deserves all the praise. He deserves all the glory. The focus is God who lives forever and ever. The focus is God who has destroyed his enemies while rescuing his people. He's the focus. So that historic Exodus celebration of the Old Testament, God's people standing and singing on the other side of the Red Sea, watching God consume his enemies, which is Pharaoh, who the Psalms refer to as the dragon and his minions, was possible only because, as I conclude, only because of their initial escape from God's judgment back in Israel as they were covered by blood on the doorpost and the lintel. They couldn't have left in the first place. So too, this ultimate Exodus celebration, God's people standing and sitting or singing alongside the sea mingled with fire, watching God consume their enemies, our enemies, his enemies, Satan, the dragon, and his minions. 
was only possible because you escaped, because I escaped the initial judgment of God, sin and death by the blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. So all of this ties together. God's redeemed people sing the song of Moses, the song of the Lamb, one Savior, one people singing one gospel song of worship. For Christ alone has provided the only passage of deliverance through the sea of death. So for you, as well as our Old Testament brothers and sisters who participated in the first exodus, we'll all be standing here singing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Hallelujah. What a Savior. What did we sing this morning? Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood, Hallelujah, what a savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless lamb of God was he, full atonement. Can it be? Can it be? Hallelujah, what a savior. One savior, one gospel, one people, one song. May we, beloved, be amazed by grace and deliverance and not be amazed by justice and wrath. Amazing grace means we've been delivered from justice and wrath. Amen? Amen. Father, again, we thank you for this heavenly vision revealing for us the continuity of scripture. Everything prefigured in the Old Testament is fulfilled by our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, help us, we pray, not to be shocked, not to be amazed, and certainly not to sinfully view your justice and your wrath as anything but just. But may we be amazed, may we be shocked, may we be thankful, may we rejoice, may we be humbled because of your grace, which is so amazing. Lord, bless your people this morning. Bless your truth to their hearts. And guide us as a people redeemed, understanding the price that was paid, so that we, Lord, by your grace and by your power, would live a life that manifests the redemptive power of grace, the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives and through our lives. We thank you for passing over us because of the blood of the Lamb. Lord, if there's anyone here who is not under the blood, I pray that today, by your Spirit's power, would grant them the ability to believe, to repent, to receive the glorious gift of the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the earth so that they too might rejoice and understand that they'll be standing here singing and praising forever and ever. In Jesus' name, amen.